Thank you for downloading this episode of A History of Central Florida Podcast. This is the podcast where we explore Central Florida's history through the artifacts found in local area museums and historical societies. This series is brought to you by Riches, the regional initiative to collect the history, experiences, and stories of Central Florida and the Orange County Regional History Center. I am Daniel Velasquez, and I will be your host for this final episode titled Vernacular Exhibits. For most of the last 49 episodes, we featured artifacts in museums and historical societies that were preserved and curated for the public by professional museum staff. In this episode, we step outside the museum to explore objects and artifacts on exhibit in public places, curated by local residents. Historians refer to these local public displays as vernacular exhibits. When an exhibit is representative of a local community and produced by one or more of the members of that community, then that is what makes an exhibit vernacular. Dr. Tammy Gordon from North Carolina State University explains this process. I I usually thought about these things in terms of the spaces in which they occurred. So a vernacular exhibition is one that occurs in a space where something else is happening. So, um, and people don't come to the space necessarily to see an exhibition. The the spaces in which I found these quite often were uh, bars and restaurants. Um, They also occurred in retail settings, uh, you know, and so... Uh, usually people were coming there to you know, do what you do in a business. They pick up your dry cleaning or, or, or have a meal or whatever, and then here's this exhibition that happens to be part of um, th- that space. Historical curation does, is not limited to the museum, that people are using the process of curation um, in the spaces where they are, um, are living their lives. Museum staff curate artifacts to describe a shared local history. The meaning surrounding those objects are displayed on text panels and historic photos. The museum exhibit becomes a way to communicate stories about a community. Since vernacular exhibits lack text panels, their meaning is more implicit and we must interpret meaning onto them. Dr. Tammy Gordon describes what goes into community curation. A community exhibit is uh, part of the taxonomy that I was using to try to get a hold of um, all of the different kinds of exhibitions that you see uh, in different spaces. So uh, a community exhibition is one in which uh, the goal is to explain a community's identity to outsiders. Um, and so these occur in um, in, in museums, large and small, uh, but they're very common in small museums um, that uh, whose mission is to explain usually a a geographical community. Uh, so, however, however, a group of people are defining uh, themselves as a community, they can use exhibition to explain that sense of identity and that sense of belonging to outsiders because the exhibition, uh, you know, can really function as kind of the, the living rooms or the parlors, if you will, um, for, for people to welcome guests and explain themselves to other people outside of the community. They also can function well for community cohesion. So it's a product of um, community skills and teamwork as much as it is 
uh, a product of um, curation. A restaurant is a location that displays vernacular exhibits through photos and paintings on the wall, as well as other artifacts. We traveled with Dr. Deepa Nair from the University of Central Florida to an Indian restaurant in Winter Springs called Gateway to India. There she told us about the objects in the dining room. They're sitting in Gateway to India in Winter Springs and it's an Indian restaurant. Indian restaurants usually would have very earthly tones. They would have motifs which are Indian. They would definitely have some kind of an iconography of maybe Ganesh or something signifying one of the indigenous religions of India. There was general images, so you would see either Krishna with his consort or you would see Ganesh. So that would just depicting that if the owner is a Hindu, he would have some kind of an Hindu Indian imagery. It's just Krishna with this consort, rather they just together and enjoying the night, I guess. I mean, it's because you can, you know he's Krishna because he's wearing a peacock feather and he's blue. And he's, you know, he has his consort and he spends time with her, so that's, that's what that depicts. Not only does Gateway to India exhibit Indian culture, but also geography. While the general Indian exhibition of items would offer meaning to non-Indian residents, there is an example of vernacular curation which speaks to South Asian people familiar with the ethnic, religious, and geographic diversity of India. Based on this knowledge, Dr. Nair explains what region of India the owners originated. For instance, this particular restaurant is owned by a Punjabi, and that's why you see the poster or the print of the Golden Temple, the holiest place for Sikhs in India, and all over the world actually. And also throughout you can actually see images depicting rural Punjab. Punjab is the bread basket of India, the wheat basket of India, the place where Green Revolution took place. If you go to rural Punjab, you know, women, the, the costumes that the women are wearing, you see the long um, head shawl, dupatta and the kind of cloth that they are wearing it just it's very typical of either Punjab or Haryana in the northern part of the Indian subcontinent. Now let's travel to the Mills 50 district in downtown Orlando and this time step outside the restaurant and experience another example of vernacular curation. We stand in front of the Chan Lu Garden restaurant and under the black awning are a series of red paper lanterns which are important symbols throughout East Asia. Dr. Hong Zhang from the University of Central Florida tells us about what these lanterns mean. Paper lanterns go a long way back. Soon after Chinese people invented paper, they invented uh, paper lanterns. So paper lanterns have become a very important part of Chinese culture. They symbolize uh, good luck, happiness, and family togetherness. Actually, there's one very important Chinese festival that's called the Lantern Festival. It falls on January the 15th of the lunar calendar. Once the Lantern Festival is over, the celebration of Chinese New Year basically comes to an end. During the Lantern Festival, you know, streets are lined up with lanterns, and very often they have, you know, riddles uh, attached to the lanterns. And also on this particular festival, people have other activities going on, such as, you know, doing the dragon dance, line dance, etc. So it's a very uh, festive occasion. 
think the restaurant owners must be Chinese, and they want to to know immediately that this is a Chinese restaurant, and this is a restaurant that's related to um, to China and also to Chinese culture. Now, if we travel a block east from Chanlu Garden on Colonial Drive, there is a flagpole at 1216 Colonial that displays the South Vietnamese flag. This is the heart of the Vietnamese American business district. The flag was adopted by South Vietnam after World War II. It was retired at the end of the Vietnam War, when the entire country was unified under the communist government of North Vietnam. Since the Vietnam War, Vietnamese migrants who traveled around the world adopted this flag in protest to the Socialist Republic of Vietnam. There is meaning in placing the flag here, in the heart of the mill's 50 business district, and along one of the busiest roads in downtown Orlando. The exhibition of this flag communicates the political speech of the Vietnamese residents who came to the U.S. after the war's end. As we traveled east into downtown Orlando. We arrived at Lake Eola Park. We went specifically to International Plaza on the southeast side of the park. International Plaza was introduced in May 1994 by the City of Orlando as an expansion of the park that acknowledged the international residents who were forming new communities in the city. Parks are places that oftentimes are homes to monuments, another form of vernacular exhibition. We asked Dr. Fawn Gordon. From the University of Central Florida, to explain the ways in which a monument is like a museum exhibit. Okay, so the question of whether monuments function in public the same way they do in museums. Yes, they do, because a monument does have certainly an intent, an intent of interpretation. Whether one agrees with it or not, certainly that intent then becomes. Legible, readable, and visible on that monument. The monuments at International Plaza are historical figures representing a variety of international communities in Orlando. The figures and busts were selected and paid for by ethnic leaders who were prominent in politics and businesses in the Central Florida area. The Venezuelan community is represented by Simon Bolivar. Mexican residents selected Miguel Hidalgo y Costilla, while Cuban residents chose Jose Marti for the Cuban community. South Asians are represented by Mahatma Gandhi, and finally, the growing community of Filipinos selected Jose Rizal. What all of these historical figures have in common is that they are regarded as colonial liberators in their native countries. The selection of these figures communicates a history of common struggle. For independence from European empires, and one could say that all of these figures also share a history with the United States going back to 1776. Groups oftentimes sponsor parades in and around Lake Eola Park. Parades are another form of vernacular exhibition. Here, Dr. Catherine McFarland Bruce from Wake Forest University tells us the meaning behind parades. Parades are a way、um, in the Western world and in the U.S. in particular that we signal what we honor,、um, and that we it is a ritual that we use to honor certain things in society. So we have Fourth of July parades to honor that history and to commemorate
uh, our, you know, freedom as a nation and the values of America. We have Christmas parades, Thanksgiving, and then we also have things like veterans parades or parades when um, a sports team wins or when a group of veterans come, uh, come home from war. Uh, and so we use parades as a way to celebrate as a community um, and often as a way to draw our attention to the things that we value or the things that we think we should value. Dr. Bruce explains the artifacts that can be found at parades. Parades are often a, an ephemeral piece of, of culture. Um, they, you know, they exist and then they go away. Often parades will use symbols such as flags to identify the group that uh, the parade is held for. You'll use American flags in the Fourth of July parade, and et cetera. And then sometimes they'll produce um, flyers for the event, um, you know, things people will wear as part of it. Uh, celebration is a part of many parades, and so you may have different celebratory items, like in Mardi Gras having the beads um, or having certain noisemakers, uh, those, uh, those type of things that people use to participate in the parade. In October, Central Florida gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender organizations sponsor the yearly Orlando Pride Parade. The first Pride Parade was organized in 1991, and since then, the Pride Parade has been an opportunity for the GLBT community to engage the larger Central Florida community. Pride Parades produce their own artifacts, the most common of which usually features a rainbow symbol or emblem. Well, I would say the, the flag in terms of the rainbow is a symbol throughout Pride, you know, both in terms of an actual people hold flags and and wave them, but then they'll use that as a way to identify the parade as an LGBT event and identify individuals as part of it. So people will wear rainbow suspenders and rainbow <laughs> socks and beads uh, and noisemakers and those things you may find as other artifacts at the parade that can uh, run through. In terms of other symbols, you've seen some arise in the gay community, the equal symbol of the human rights campaign, for example, people will use that. Um, different groups within the LGBT community have their own symbols as well. So you have uh, Bears, which is a community of gay men who are bigger and hairier, and that's what they celebrate about themselves. Um, they'll often have a bear paw uh, symbol uh, attached to them to identify themselves. Um, bisexuals as well have pink and blue kind of as their, their colors and their insignia, and they'll often identify themselves as such. So you'll see a few different um, symbols of the particular groups within the community used as well as a way, again, just as part, in the same way that the rainbow flag is used to identify all LGBT people and supporters, those will be used to identify this particular group within the community. Exploring these examples of vernacular exhibits in Central Florida gives us a multi-layered view of local communities that you may not find in your local area museums. As you learn from this podcast, Museums house history going back thousands of years, but recent residents and communities who have only been public recently might not yet be featured in your local museums. We hope that this episode has given you the tools to discover the diverse communities in your local area and the ways in which their history and culture is curated in public for all to view and appreciate. On behalf of the team that put this podcast series together, we want to thank you for subscribing and joining us on this journey through Central Florida's history and its museums. At the end of every episode, we ask you to visit a museum to see an object featured in the podcast. Now, 
At the end of the series, we ask you to go out and visit your local museum, wherever it may be, and begin your journey to uncover the shared history of your own community.